what we do from Lord's Day to Lord's Day is not some habit that we have formed. It's not some ritual that we have engaged in so that we can soothe our conscience so that we can inevitably say, I went to church today. What we do from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, if you understand the Bible and the New Testament, what we do from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, I would say to you that it's the very meat and drink of our souls. It also puts us in a glorious train of those who have gone before us and who have lived for Christ faithfully and finished their course and race before those who have gone before us. When we gather together to open up the Word of God, just like we've done and just like we have sang together the great hymns of the faith and we've praised the Lord and we take part in the Lord's Supper and we on occasion see people follow Christ through believers' baptism. When we do those things, ladies and gentlemen, we are doing something that has been done for 2,000 years. And I submit to you that no matter how difficult it gets in our country, God's people will continue to do these things until Jesus Christ comes again. Those who truly belong to the Lord will do that. So we are here today trying to live out the truth of God for His glory. So as Paul gathered those elders to Miletus, remember that two weeks ago? Before the icing and snow, before you laid out, right? And some of you needed to, of course. But it was interesting, we went from around 6.30 or 6.40 the week before to 2.90 last week. So we lost 300 people. Uh, but of course, again, we say use discretion. That doesn't mean snow day, I'm going to sleep in with a half a centimeter of snow. But, I mean, we, we all like snow days, right? But if you remember, we started a series within a series of Acts, and we called it How to Care for the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. And so, what Paul is going to do is he's going to call the elders from Ephesus over to Miletus. And he's going to pour his heart out to these people. And so we learn from that not just the heartbeat of Paul, but we also learn some principles that are key for how Paul felt like, led by the Holy Spirit, that the church of God ought to operate. So we can, all, we can actually use this as a mirror of our own church to say, how are we living out these most important principles that Paul gives us? Now, most people believe that this is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian believers. And I would say that it is a farewell address. However, he will later write, before his death, six chapters to this church called the book of Ephesians. And he will also write... One of the pastoral epistles uh, to Timothy, who was the pastor in Ephesus. So he will write six chapters to uh, the Ephesian believers and then first and second Timothy. So he had much to say to them and impress upon him. And you will be able to see when you read first and second Timothy how some of these things overlap from Acts 20, 17 all the way down through verse 38. So Paul was convinced that he would not see their faces again. If you scan on down to verse 25, 
And now I behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So think about this for a moment. Paul knows that these elders, nor the church of Ephesus, will see his face again. Now, let's say you had one month to live. What would you say to those that are around you? you got one month to live. Would you talk about the things that mattered most? Are you all awake? Did the snow day get you? Would you? What, what would you say and what would you convey to one another? Sure hope the Cardinals win the World Series this year. Only got one month to live. That's at the top of my agenda. Now I hope we would not waste our time with such things that might be biennial things at best. You know, the Cardinals, they're not going to win it every year. They're not going to win it every two years. Three, four, five, six years. Nobody's going to, but we consume ourselves with these things. I think and want to believe that if you love Christ and you serve Him faithfully, that if you had one month to live and you were conveying to your children and your family and to your church body the things that are most important, it would be things similar to what Paul is giving us in this text. What he gives them, he expects those elders, leaders, pastors of the church, to take back to Ephesus the plurality of these guys, to take it back to the church in Ephesus and pour this into the people. Now in verses 18 through 21, we unpacked that a couple of weeks ago. And we see how Paul looked kind of back on his ministry. He said, I lived a certain way among you. Listen to it. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, autobiographical, right? This is Paul giving his, uh, Luke giving Paul's direct address to the elders. You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. So remember we talked about how important it is to live an exemplary life. That's true for the pastor. It's true for the church members. And although we could bring these things over pastorally, these things are also true for you. How vitally important it is for us to live an exemplary life. Note this. Point two. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So that was the second thing we looked at. How very vitally important it is for us as a people to serve the Lord. And to do so with humility and with passion. And verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, if it was profitable for your soul... Even how, even maybe what he said was difficult for us to accept. Maybe it was the pastor kind of meddling into your life. Maybe it was the word that was cutting a certain way. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, correctly? And it's coming into collision with your mind and your thoughts and your heart. And we're like waving the flag. Oh, I can't take it anymore. Paul says, I will not be deterred from preaching the truth. I'm going to preach that which is profitable for the soul. I'm not going to shrink back. And ultimately, he was preaching and proclaiming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us up to verse 22. And here is our focus this morning. How to care for the blood-bought church of Christ. And what I would like to remind you of here is that Paul had spent three years pouring his life into these people. Don't you believe they loved him? 
Don't you think Paul was precious to the church of Ephesus? Now catch this. This is the longest span of time that this apostle, the greatest apostle that ever lived, the greatest Christian that ever lived, this is the longest amount of ministerial span of time ever spent by Paul in one location. He spent three years there. He poured his life into them. And so by the time we get to the end of this pastoral address, they're going to weep over him. If you read down to the end, they're weeping. They're shedding tears over this. He loved these men. They loved him. And so they knew how Paul had lived for the gospel's sake. He was with them. He did not shrink back. But as he looks ahead, now again, the first three things were kind of looking back. Exemplary life, uh, telling them what was proper for their soul, not shrinking back, uh, living in such a way that honored Christ. But now he's going to be looking ahead in verses 22 through 24. Yes, I'm just preaching three little verses, okay? So this morning, he's looking ahead at what's going to happen. And for most of us, if we saw what was ahead of us, and it was like what Paul said and saw, we would be like, okay, Lord, we draw the line in the sand here. This following Jesus is all good and well, but when it starts costing me something, I can't do it. So Paul is looking ahead, and for most of us, it would cause us to shudder. This would cause most of us to run for safety somewhere else. But Paul looked ahead. And he saw that the mandate given to him by the Savior, who had purchased him by his own blood, was a whole lot more important than even his own life. And we don't think like that often, but this is what's going on. Paul saw his commitment to Jesus as a holy duty. Yet there was also a glad submission for what God had in store for Paul's life. Folks, if God is sovereign, he's in control. Why should we fear? Why should we not give ourselves totally to Him and expend ourselves knowing ultimately that God is in control? So there is something in us, all of us, that ought to resonate with what Paul has to say here. These are some of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, 22 through 24. And I would submit to you that I would pray that your life verse becomes 2024. That it does. I saw your heads drop to read it. You have to ask yourself at the end of this sermon, am I an Acts 2024 Christian? Am I? Do I see my purpose on earth like Paul saw it? So this is how uh, I think most of us probably felt the day we trusted Christ. When you were captivated by the grace of God and how He loved you first, Amen. and you reciprocated that love toward Him, think back to that day and how awesome that was to think about your newfound faith in Christ and how you are to live out for the purpose of God. And I would submit to you at the end of this sermon, I hope that you will find your first love. Or more importantly, you will return to your first love. So I want to give you some governing principles. Again, we're, we're really adding to the first sermon. Exemplary lifestyle. And we're, we're adding those things, points. And when we get to the end, there's probably going to be 10 or 12 things that we could say. This is what my life ought to look like. This is what our church ought to be embarking upon. So here's the first thing for today. Beginning in verse 22, we're going to trust in the providence of God wherever He leads. Notice the text. Verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained, interesting word, by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, in verse 22, do you see it? Paul trusted in the providence of God wherever God led him and whatever God led him to do. So we don't say that's just Paul's thing here. We have to bring it over to our application today and say to ourselves, we need to trust in the providence of God wherever he leads. Here's how Paul explained that. I am bound. Uh, Another translation would say, I am constrained by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of God has made it abundantly clear to me that I am called to go up to Jerusalem. The NLT reads this way, I am drawn there irresistibly by the Holy Spirit of God. And the NLT is a great thought-for-thought translation. It is not wooden literal like the ESV or the New King James or the RSV or the NASV, but it is a tremendous thought-for-thought translation. And that is certainly the thought here of constrained and being bound. I am, Paul says, in lieu of the providence of God and the fact that our God is faithful and He's got an awesome, 100% perfect track record. Doesn't He? God is sovereign and His providence rules today. And Paul says, I am constrained by the Holy Spirit. In other words, folks, he was under divine compulsion to obey the Lord and go up to Jerusalem. That's his singular focus, to go up to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God gripped his life. And this is what I know, Paul says, that I'm supposed to go up to Jerusalem. There are some things he, he doesn't know, correct? You see it in there? And, but yet again, he's going to turn around and say, but this I do know. So Paul is directly trusting in the providence of God. How often do we want to know every one of the details before we actually commit to the Lord. So this means that Paul walked by faith and not by sight. Y'all know that verse is found in the Bible, right? To walk by faith and not by sight. If he was a man who merely walked by sight, do you think Paul would have gone back to Jerusalem? Do you think he would have if he'd have been a man that merely walked by sight? If he was a man who merely walked by sight, he would have said, you know what, I'm not sure what's going to happen to me there, so I think I will go somewhere where I can better calculate the outcome of serving the Lord. Does it sound like us at times? Well, confession is good for the soul, right? We often choose the path of least resistance and the path that that we actually feel like we can control the channels a little bit. And it allows us the ability To try to calculate the outcome. Boy, it's kind of quiet in here. But we know how we live. We know how we think as human beings. So the Spirit had actually gripped Paul. He was headed to Jerusalem in full obedience. Stunning obedience. Knowing what awaited him there for sure. Some things which would be trials and afflictions and chains. And yet he obeyed. This is the one thing Paul was certain about. He's completely in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got news for you. God's providence always rules today. And if you are saved, you can commit yourself to the will of God. And you say, what's that for my life? Let me go ahead and tell you, 99% of it's found in the Word of God. If you'll just start obeying that 99%, the other little gray areas will take care of themselves. A thousand books have been sold about how to know the will of God. And, And half of them are bogus. Because the fact of the matter is, 99% of what you're supposed to do for Christ is found in the Word of God. Just obey it. 
you know, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to take, that'll all work out. I promise you. It'll work out if you're spending 99% of your time doing what the Word of God has to say to us. So, Paul knew that the Spirit of God led him. This is what he does know. His course will involve in every city as he goes up to Jerusalem. Think about this. Imprisonment and afflictions and hardships. Chains, tribulations await him. Now, how would we process this? How would we process this individually? You know, the Word of God has to be processed. When it comes into collision with your mind and your heart and your emotions and your affections, then we're called by God to be, we're confronted by the Word. And so, when we see what Paul says, and, and he's going on up to Jerusalem, knowing he's going to have trials and tribulations and difficulties and hardships and chains, he's going to go on. But how would we process this? I think the slightest clanging of chains and the slightest hint of tribulation would cause most of us to say, well, that can't possibly be the will of God for my life. Hey, I can just be honest as your pastor, right? Because I would be the same way in many, many cases. Just a little bit of the clanging of the chains. You know, we live in America. It's the land of the free. How in the world can God be in me being put in chains for His cause? Or suffering for Him? I think Paul had people in every city that was telling him this. As we move through Acts, you're going to get to a chapter where Agapus takes Paul's belt and he puts it around himself and he, he, he dramatically says to Paul, if you go up to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. So I think that Paul is, is told by prophet after prophet and man of God after man of God and woman of God after woman of God, Paul, if you go up to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to you. And he knows this is coming to him day after day. And yet, he's totally set on obeying the Lord. Now folks, how do we measure ministerial success? First Baptist Church of Ozark is growing. We've got a new pastor. People are joining. The church is full. Is that necessarily an indication uh, of spiritual growth and or what's going to please the Lord? Here's what the Holy Spirit did not say to Paul. Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to do a tent meeting. And 10,000 people are going to come every night to hear you. The revival is going to last for four months. And you're going to rack up a bunch of dollars. Your pockets are going to be full of money. And you're going to be on the 5 o'clock news in Jerusalem. Now folks, that's honestly the way we view at times what ministerial success is. But Paul says as you go up to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer for my sake. You're going to be in chains. You're going to have manifold afflictions upon your life is what's going to happen to you. No promise of ministerial success in Jerusalem. Not one iota. In other words, God says ministry, Paul, has been tough in the past and it's going to be tough in the future. You can count on it. And this is God's promise to a missionary. A missionary promise to an apostle. But here we see a man of God content with the details and to let God take care of it. Here's a man of God who submitted to the will of God and the providence of God in every aspect of life. Even though he didn't know all the specifics he still committed himself. He trusted the providence of God. I think he figured that God had been faithful to him in the past. And guess what? God will be faithful to him in the future. Here's what Paul is going to write to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, found in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, listen to this, every word is important. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in this life for Christ Jesus 
will suffer persecution. And I know we stand off, we're, we're aloof from this in the United States of America. I think we think suffering is getting up in the morning and coming to Sunday school at FBCO. Honestly, folks, we think that is suffering. But that's not suffering for Jesus, okay? But here we understand this is a universal statement. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. Now, is that your desire? Are you living that godly life? Well, if you do, you will be persecuted for Christ. You will be. Paul would certainly not shrink back from this charge, would he? He said it to Timothy, but he just didn't say it. He actually lived it out. He was determined to fulfill God's will. He was determined to trust the providence of God over his life. He knew that the Spirit of God had ordained it, so he embraced it. And again, that is the context of the verse that all the athletes put across their eyes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Folks, that's not a magic solution. That's not to say I'm going out here to throw a football and win the national championship. Woo, God strengthened me. To God be the glory. The context of that is difficulty. The context of that is losing his life nearly for the cause of the gospel. Paul says whether I'm down or whether I'm up, whether I'm fed, whether I'm hungry, it doesn't matter. God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of him saying that. Adoniram Judson once said, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite mercy and love, I could not have survived my many sufferings. Folks, I can say that about my own life, and I have not suffered nothing like, not even remotely close to how some have suffered. But I can tell you this, if I didn't trust the providence of God, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't even be your pastor if I didn't trust the leading of the Holy Spirit of God. If I didn't trust that God was providentially leading and orchestrating my entire life, even my difficulties and my stupidity and my failures, God never excuses sin, but I'm telling you, He'll use it. He'll use your failures. He'll use your failures to orchestrate in your life. He'll break you in so many ways to get your focus on what's most important. Do you ever think it ever entered Paul's mind that he was following in his Savior's footsteps? Did anybody think about that when I mentioned going up to Jerusalem? What did Jesus, what was his, he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem at a certain time in his ministry and he wouldn't take his face off of it. I must go up Jerusalem. Now he was going up to Jerusalem a little different than Paul. Although Paul would die there, here was the Lord Jesus going up to Jerusalem to die himself for the sins of his people. For me and you. You ever think it entered Paul's mind that just as the Savior set his focus on fulfilling the Father's will, I must set my focus on doing what the Savior asked me to do. Do you trust the providence of God over your life? I'm not, I don't mean just tipping your hat. I mean, truly, do you trust the providential work of God in your life? Here's the second thing. Treasure Jesus Christ supremely. Again, verse 24. So rich. I think as you move down through the text, when you get down to protecting and guarding the church of the living God... I think that is ultimately the, 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 the thematic verse. That's why I title it, Guarding the Church or the, Protecting the Blood-Bought Church of the Lord. However, when it comes to one verse that explains to us the, the entire passion of Paul's life, it is found in Acts 20, 24. I think you're looking into Paul's passion when you get here. And again, his passion is pretty clear. He treasured Jesus Christ supremely above all things. 
He not only trusted the providence of God over his life and wherever he went and whatever he did, but he also treasured Jesus Christ supremely. Again, what is the connection? Context is king, right? What is the context of Paul saying this? Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me, but I do not count, account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. you got to see the connection. In the midst of all those sufferings, what Paul saw that was most important was fulfilling his purpose and treasuring Jesus at the moment and all the way to the end. That would be his goal. Chains and tribulations await me, but that's not going to deter me because I consider my life no value, or because I don't consider my life of any value nor as precious to myself. In other words, there's nothing in me or nothing in my life that is so valuable that it would keep me from following the command that Jesus Christ had given to me. Folks, this is radical. This is so anti-American. It really is. Here again, I do not account of any value nor precious as myself before the Lord. I do not account my life of any value not as precious to myself. Now, if you let these words sink in, you will find that they are deeply un-American. Now, I'm not being unpatriotic at all. I'm just telling you, from where we've been in the past to where we are today, uh, it's extremely so that we've forgotten, of course, our own identity as a country, but I would su submit to you that your identity, according to the Scripture, trumps, no pun intended, any kind of loyalty to anything else. Y'all with me? The Bible has to be supreme, not America. The Word of the living God has to be supreme and first and foremost in our lives. So, don't we live and breathe and die for certain inalienable rights? Don't we? Life, liberty... And the pursuit of happiness. And some of us have the attitude, I know that's not found in the Bible, but gosh darn it, it ought to be. It's somewhere in the Bible, just look for it. I, I know it's there. Well, folks, it's not there. And there is a dangerous epidemic in this world today among professing Christians. And you often pick up the books, and you read them, and you've left your mind somewhere else. You, you're so open-minded that your brain's falling out. And you're reading all this progressive Christianity stuff that you're the captain of your own ship. And you chart your own course. And be the me I can be. Folks, do you see how detrimental that is to the advancement of the gospel and you serving the purpose of God in this world? It is not about you. It's not about becoming the best you. Are y'all listening? It's not about becoming the best you. Or helping yourself and reading the how-tos of motherhood and how you can... Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and be the best you. Paul would have gagged if we told him that. That's not what Christian living is about. There's something bigger here. Paul says, I do not account my life as something precious to me. Whew. Paul's life was not so precious to him that he was willing to cling to it at all costs. To disobey the, the straightforward commission given to him by the Lord. Prison and suffering are in my future. But Paul says it doesn't matter. I do not account my life of any value to me or precious to me. The NLT again says this. My life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. That being the work of telling others of the good news of the grace of God. Now, folks, 
Could you think about how we would change the world, young people, in our universities? Look at me. And in your high school, look up. Young people, you know who you are. Do you think, just think about the difference you would make at your school if you thought first about making an impact for Jesus even above your academics. We don't think like that as parents, right? We want to kick that soccer ball down the field and throw that volleyball up. We want to play that baseball and football. Why? Woo, we're going to get a scholarship. And guess what? Most of your kids don't get one. I'm just being honest. We put all the eggs in one basket and then, then it doesn't show up. Here's, here's the deal. When's the last time you thought forthrightly that I'm going ultimately for the purpose of treasuring Jesus above all things? And I'm going to make an impact for the king. How about you middle-agers? I mean, we get, we get caught in that situation where we're trying to climb that ladder. Corporate world or whatever. When's the last time you thought God is doing these things in my life so that I can further the gospel of the king? Well, that's a different, that's a different arena, isn't it? But I'm telling you, folks, I'm not making this up. You just heard the verse. This was Paul's absolute passion in his life. In other words, faithfulness to Christ and treasuring Him was what was most important. Paul says, I only want one thing, to finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the glorious grace of God. You know what that means? It is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. Paul says, I'm living my life to do this. He saw his life as thoroughly expendable for the cause of Christ. Paul says, when I look at my life, it's nothing provided that I do the thing that God called me to do. I think the flip side of that is your life is precious if you're doing what God's called you to do. And the value of doing it for His glory. Is that not a paradoxical statement? That in giving your life and expending your life for the cause of Christ, that you find the most significance in life. That's the best thing I've said today. I mean, folks, think about that. Young people, middle-aged people, older people, please hear me. It's losing your life that you'll find it. It's expending your life for Jesus Christ that you find the significance in your life. Why do you think kids are so hooked on drugs and, and hooked on sex before marriage? The next kick down the line. You know why? Because you're not finding your significance in life. It's because you're not clinging to the providential grace of Jesus Christ in your life. And you're not treasuring Jesus supremely. I'm telling you, when you treasure Him supremely, all the kicks in the world can't add up to even come close to what you sense in Jesus Christ being over and in your life. They're not worth it. In the end, they're just they're vain, empty substitutes for the real deal. It is in expending your life for Jesus that, that you actually find it. When you see your lives as a gift of God, that you give back to Him, spent for Christ's sake, that you're expendable for the purpose of God, that's truly when you find significance. Here's the bottom line for us. Faithfulness is better than life. Faithfulness to Christ is better than life. Faithfulness to Christ and the gospel is better than the attractions and the stuff of this world. What is it that gripped Paul? He saw his life as a race. And that in that race, he was completely expendable for Jesus. He saw his life uh, that he should, he saw his life as a race that he ran with total self-abandonment. And through that, he would finish his race. Now, confession's good for the soul, right? 
Old preachers in the South used to say, it's time for us to fess up. And here's how we confess it. I'm in, I'm, in that, I'm in the same vein as you are. I'm guilty just like you are. We are soft people. No amens? We love a life of ease. We love our toys and our stuff. We love the things that will one day go up in smoke. You ever read that in 1 Peter? Everything is going to fall apart in the elements and be dissolved. And man, we'll sell the bank to get some of those things that are just going to go up in smoke. I did two funerals in the last two weeks. Hard ones. Here's what I learned. Mr. Billy Rucker nor Miss Bobby Ledlow took a single thing with them. Nothing. It is certain you entered this world with nothing. And it is certain you're going to go out of this world with nothing. Right? We know it's true. But God had set a course for Paul that he was supposed to run. And Paul knew that God did not plop him down in life in a pew to observe and enjoy the basic things of life with no sense of purpose. Notice this in the text. To complete the ministry I received from the Lord. What was Paul's view of ministry? Well, ministry was life and life was ministry. You don't have to be a preacher to believe that about your own life. If you're saved by grace through faith and you're a Christian, then you're a minister. You know, it doesn't mean you're standing behind the pulpit. It doesn't mean your gift is to proclaim the word. But you are a minister to the king. It was a race with a goal to be completed. Now check this out. It was a mission given to him to be accomplished. So Paul saw his life not as something to be hoarded, but something to be expended for the purpose of Christ. So in 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, he could say in the Mamertine prison, waiting to be executed now, here's what Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. Now, folks, does this relate to us? Well, I want to tell you it does. From the youngest of you that know Christ to the oldest of you that know Jesus Christ, God has a purpose for you if you are saved. He has a ministry for you to fulfill. Shame on us if we see life in any other way. I'm telling you folks, you've totally missed the understanding biblically of what the Christian life is. If you think that it's all about just filling a pew, it's all about just kind of going through the motions. Folks, I'm trying to get you this morning to get your focus right. If you're a believer, then your number one focus and purpose is to finish the course God has given you this side of heaven. Amen. It's to finish that purpose. It's to honor Him with your life in whatever vocation you are in. It's to honor Christ. He, God had given him that purpose. And you say, well, that was Paul. Folks, the same Holy Spirit that led Paul is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. Right? Here's the problem. We're not in the Word enough to hear what he has to say. It comes from the Word together with the Spirit where God leads us. Does this relate to us? Now, I know we get sidetracked. Don't we all? I mean, from day to day with the difficulties. And, you know, you wake up in the morning and you think, Woo, today's the Lord's day. And then you have a knockdown drag out with your bride. Or baby Ajax screamed all night long. And then the kids get ready to go to school and they're just fighting like cats and dogs. You know, and then before long you just... And the last thing on your mind is the purpose that God has placed you here for. And might I say, one purpose, of course, is family. If you're a mom or a dad, your responsibilities are numerous. But they all fall, fail in comparison. They lag behind.
to this one purpose that God has given. That you expend your life for the cause of Christ. That you give your life for Him. Now, again, we get sidetracked. But you certainly hear the voice of the Lord speaking to your heart when you get off track. Right? If you're saved, you certainly feel, Lord, well, there's an emptiness there. there. Something is missing. I'm not engaging. So Paul saw, as he looked at the contour of his life, he said it must testify to the grace of God. Now, folks, I know that's manifold. But, it, but certainly it involves speaking of it. Speaking of the grace of God. Living out the grace of God in your life. I think this is why Paul could look at the stoning that took place in Pisidian Antioch and say, I survived that because God's not through with me yet. I survived that because God has a purpose in my life that has to be fulfilled. Philippians, Philippians 1, you know this verse, don't you? For me to, and to die is gain. I want to tell you, I believe that preaching was secondary to Paul. I know it drove him if he was alive, but I think the most important thing was seeing Jesus. For me to live, yeah, no matter what I'm doing, preaching, sharing the gospel, but to die is gain. I mean, seeing Jesus face to face, 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 to face ladies and gentlemen, ultimate. Ultimate, awesome reality. He wanted to see his Savior, but he had a purpose to fulfill on earth. And as you read Philippians 1, you'll notice that Paul is dealing with that. I desire to depart from you and be with Christ, but if God has more value at this moment for me being here with you to teach you and to preach the gospel, in other words, to fulfill that calling, that's what I will do. So the sum and substance of what it is to treasure Jesus supremely is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's to communicate to this world through our life and through our voice and through our leadership that Jesus Christ saves sinners. He saved us. He can save others. We have a Savior who came into this world to die for sinners. And God left Paul there to testify of that message of the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's why ultimately you are here, whether you realize it or not. He was willing to give up everything for Christ. His passion was to treasure Jesus Christ supremely and to testify of the grace of God. He lived in such a way always to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think Paul would have been interested in the minimal form of Christianity that we have in America today. I don't think Paul would have been interested one iota with the minimal form of Christianity. What is the bare minimum that I, that I can do and you can do and still be considered a believer? Now, you think this is petty, but I'm telling you, this is the way we think. This is the way America is. It, like it or not, and it's not going to get better. It's the minimalistic form of Christianity. How can I do everything I want to do, have anything I want, pursue all my hobbies, and do so with gusto, and come right up to the line of being a Christian? Don't we live like that? Let's be honest today. You see why I didn't preach this last week? Because I figured 300 of you wouldn't be here. And I wanted all 600 of you rascals to hear it. There's a fundamental problem that faces the church today. And it's, it's how can we maximize worldliness and minimize the commitment to Christ and still be on that fine line, razor edge of still be considered a Christian. Folks, can you hear Paul responding to us by even saying something remotely close to that? Minimal? Minimalizing what? Yeah. Straddling the fence, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. What? 
Let's try to balance one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And you all the time hear people, even writing this in books, saying to us, you folks who, just put it out of your mind that you have to forsake all and follow Jesus. Put it out of your mind, the high cost of following Jesus. And I'm telling you, none of the help books, self-help books, have anything in them about sacrificing it all and denying self and following Jesus. You mark her down. You will not find anything in those help books on what it means to really follow Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. Paul would say, not on your life will we minimalize our commitment to Jesus for the sake of maximizing what it means to live in the world. I think Paul would have said that's not Christianity. Paul would say that's a cult. That's dangerous. That's an error. Because the Bible teaches us unequivocally clear that you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ unless you're willing to forsake all. Well, that's, that's strong, isn't it? But that's the radical demands of the gospel. Aren't you so thankful that God gives us the ability to forsake all? It's Christ that lives in us. I think Paul, again, would not agree with what's going on in our world. Uh, I'm not talking about lost people. I'm talking about the church. There's a huge difference, folks, for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ versus those who are in a natural state and don't know Christ at all. You can't expect the world to live like saved people. But the Bible is inundated with principles regarding what saved people ought to look like and how we ought to live. Now, does all this have a place in our hearts? Did you know that the blessings that God pours out on a people can, up, can end up being a curse? Did y'all know that? It is chock full in the Old Testament of the Israelites being blessed by God, and yet they didn't use those blessings properly. And guess what it led to? Carnality. And God then strips them away, and it hurts, and it's painful. Did you know, folks, that God is more concerned about your holiness? What am I going to say here? No, I was going to say then your retirement. Uh-oh. Isn't that true? That God would be more concerned about your holiness than your retirement? I love this, written by John Piper. He puts this in the context of, a, of, of going against the American dream and how an imagery antagonist might confront Paul in our day about his service to Christ. Okay? So here's a... An antagonist, maybe a progressive Christian, that's coming to Paul. And he's saying, Paul, should you really live like this? And here's what he says. He says this, but Paul, you're getting old. How about a cottage on the Aegean Sea? Uh, how about a lake house in Branson? Uh-oh. You've already done more ministry than most people would do in five lifetimes. It's time to take a rest, Paul. Let the last 20 years of your life be traveled in gold and puttering around. Let young Timothy have a chance. He's young, for goodness sake. Don't go to Jerusalem and don't go to Rome. And get that crazy thought out of your mind about going to Spain. You could get yourself killed. That's not American. It's not American to do that. It's not American to spend the last few years of your life on earth without retiring. Here's Paul's response. Faithfulness is better than life. Better than lose your life in retirement. Better than lose your life in the middle years. Better than lose your life as a youth. I don't know about y'all, but that convicts me. It does. Do you want to hear some definitions from the Collegiate Webster's Dictionary 
of the word retire. Are you all ready? Here's the first one. To withdraw from action or danger. Number two, to fall back. Number three, to go to bed. Number four, to march away from the enemy. Now, folks, that might be the American dream, but that's not the Bible. I'm just telling you. That's not found in the Bible. It's not Scripture at all. Can you retire and enjoy those days? Yes, you can. But you ought to get on a plane and go to Guatemala with your pastor. I don't make any bones about it. If you can go, you ought to go. Well, what can I do as I'm... You can spend your life and expend your life for the king. I don't care if you're in retirement years or not. But it's not just those who are in retirement age. We love middle life leisure. We love young life. We are inundated with leisure. Why don't you step out with action? Because some of us think that if God doesn't hit you in the head with a pole, then you're not supposed to respond to Him. Well, whatever happened to faith as an action? When's the last time you said, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to go share Jesus with somebody today, and I'm going to trust that you're going to take your uh, divine sovereignty and connect it with my obedience, and that person is going to trust Christ? When's the last time you did that? Boy, it's quiet in here, and I've got some deer-in-the-headlight looks. I've got some calves looking at a new gate look, right? I've got some of them. That's okay. Think about it for a moment. Again, God is more concerned about our treasuring His Son and living for Christ than being able to retire at 65. It's okay to stop your job. But when you stop your job in the world, you get over here in this church and go to work. I mean, folks, let's be honest. There'll come a day when I'm not pastoring in this pulpit. It will happen. But I ain't stopping. Just because I'm not standing here doesn't mean I'm not going to be on the mission field or teaching in the school or doing something and expending myself all the way to the end. And if I drop dead doing it, praise God. Right? To finish the course. Can you all see David up here leading at 95 years old? Right? I mean, that hair he had when he was a kid might come back, right? I mean, we're not supposed to stop, folks. Y'all getting this? Trust the providence of God over your life. And treasure Jesus Christ supremely. Folks, a warning. Times are going to get worse. Who are the ones that God will use? I'm telling you, it's those who account their life as nothing. The ones that say the most important thing is to be expended for Christ. What matters most is finishing the race and and completing the ministry that God has given us. That's what matters. Paul's life was one blessed yieldedness to the purpose of God in his life. That's what I need. That's what you need. It was a life of earnest passion for Christ above all things. This is what it looks like to be sold out for King Jesus. Do you have an Acts 20, 24 perspective on life? All right, we're landing a plane. Y'all listening? Everybody listening? Do you have an Acts 20, 24 perspective in life? You say, Pastor, I don't have it and don't want it. Would you, would you at least pray for it? Because if you ask the king, I'm telling you, he'll give you the answer. Would you at least be willing to do that? Would you at least be willing to consider even the prospect that God may have saved you and put you here for a purpose bigger than you? Would you at least just entertain it this morning? Right? That's what I'm asking you to do. There's no greater purpose than to magnify the Son of God with your life. No matter what else you feel called to do, it all pales in comparison to magnifying Jesus Christ with your life. So trust the providence of God wherever He would lead you, whatever He would lead you to do. And treasure Jesus Christ supremely. And all God's people said?
All God's people said? Amen. Still weak. Come on, folks. This is serious. How are we going to deal with changing times? Are we just going to bend with it? How are you going to deal with all the plethora of things coming down the pike our way? It's coming, folks. God's going to use those people who are willing to say, I will expend my life for Jesus Christ no matter. That doesn't mean that you're mean-spirited. doesn't mean that you're a know-it-all or a bigot. It means that you have the gentleness of the Son of God, but you also have the strength of the Lamb of God, right? And the, and the Lamb, the Lion of God, right? Preaching the truth in love. Standing on what is right. Proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God. Why? Because if God can save you, He can save anybody. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, I, I just praise You for our church family. And Lord, again, this, this, is, this is pastoral in nature, which means that it's written to people like me. But Lord, it's also written to people in the pews. God, I pray you would help me. Let it start with me. That I would trust your providence. And that I would treasure you supremely above all things. Oh, Father, sin is fun for a while. Kicks somewhere else are fun for a while. But your word says there is a way that seems right for a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. The Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction. You can carry a lot of baggage and a lot of luggage on a broad road. The Bible says narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few therein find it. God, help us to think about the narrow way. What does that mean for us? Lord, help us think about what it means. Father, we're in a glorious train of believers who suffer for you, and the church always flourished and grew in the crucible of persecution. American way of living is absolutely abnormal. Every civilization before ours has suffered mightily for the cause of Christ. And it's coming in the future, Lord. We see it. We know it's coming. God, I pray that we'd be ready for it. And that we would live and trust your providence. No matter if it means chains or difficulty or suffering. And ultimately help us to treasure you above all things. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The invitation is simple. Maybe you don't know Christ. So you need to start right there. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Only one qualification. Weary and heavy laden. I promise you it hit everybody in this building. If you're lost, you're weary and heavy laden. Come to Jesus. The Bible says His burden is light and His yoke is easy. Amen? You can come to Christ today. If you're saved, my encouragement to you is pray in the pew. God, help me be an Acts 20-24 believer.